Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. So remember that Netflix series from a couple years ago, We Could Be Heroes? You know, the one. It's it's about that group of um, people who could, I guess, potentially be heroes. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I just remember hearing the title. Never watch a second of it. Doesn't matter. That goal of all of them being heroes is kind of lacking ambition anyway, don't you think? It's a little lazy if I'm being honest. And when have you not known me to be honest? Honest Dan, that's what they call me. Or they would if they was an actual thing and they had a reason to. Again, doesn't matter. My point before you got me off track is that being a hero is fine if that's all you want out of life. Personally, I'm shooting more for God. I mean, not the God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not silly. I'm not trying to be all blasphemy. I just want to be a God, one of the minor gods. And and looking at what's going on in the world today, I think I could pull that off, as that seems to be the direction that we're going. Uh, just everything today is a God or has God-like powers or whatever. And that makes me think that maybe I could be too. Or maybe I already am. I, I don't know. Maybe you are or will be as well. On today's episode, first we'll need a way to figure out what's a T-1000 and who isn't, and then we'll find out the real reason why we suffer through those agonizing minutes, multiple Sundays per year, sitting in that church building, listening to that talking guy up front. So grab yourself a well-trained German shepherd and understand that when the pastor or pastrix is talking about God, he or she or they, it, is, are, really talking about you. And now, my children, join me, won't you, as here we goeth. When I was a kid, just old enough to have my permit, one of the best movies of all time was released. Now, if I remember correctly, the first time I watched this movie was with my sister and her boyfriend in his parents' lower-level family room. This was cool for me on so many levels. So I've had a a number of men in my life that I've looked up to for various reasons, but two men specifically are who I could call my heroes or my role models, I guess. People that are not perfect by any stretch, but that I've been able to look up to and, and learn from and talk with and listen to. Those two people are my dad and my brother in law. For all the grief I gave my dad for the lectures, long, agonizing lectures while growing up, Wow, did I learn a lot. And as I've grown older, we've been able to have deep discussions about topics that in many families are either not talked about or they're just argued about. And as life does, it all comes full circle with my child now having a healthy fear of asking me a question, knowing that lurking around the corner of every question is a lengthy lecture. And I can't help it, and I blame my dad. My brother-in-law, only four or so years older than me, was the cool older brother that I never had. He rode motorcycles, he rode snowmobiles, he was into football, he was great at softball, he was fast, he was strong. He's the reason that back in the day, 
When the NFL wasn't dead to me, I became a Cowboys fan in a world of Packer fans. He's the reason I wanted a snowmobile, the most fun of all the power sport toys in my opinion. He's the reason I rode a motorcycle, although I haven't owned one in some time. And as we both got older, again, we've had some deep talks about a number of things. We don't agree on everything, but that's okay. He's corrected my view on some things that I was positive I was right on, and maybe I've done the same for him. Anyway, you can understand that as a boy of about 15, with his 18 to 19-year-old sister and future brother-in-law, bowl of popcorn in hand, watching Terminator 2 for the first time, was the coolest thing ever. I have many movies that would rank in the top for me, but when people ask me my favorite movie, it's been T2 for like 30 years now. I'd say the movie itself, and likely the first time watching it, probably combined to make it the best movie ever created, in my humble opinion. And of course, the movie had groundbreaking CGI, which still holds up really well, especially for being as old as it is. And it had iconic scenes. I mean, Arnie in his leather and shades on the borrowed Harley, <laughs> borrowed Harley, swinging that shotgun around. And Robert Patrick, the liquid metal T-1000 with a massive hole blasted in his head that slowly closes back up, healing itself. And that's the image found on notthebee.com, right under the headline... AI is taking over the world, and now scientists have witnessed metal healing itself for the first time without any human intervention. I think I can see where this is heading, y'all. So with AI outthinking humans and metal just now completely healing itself up all willy-nilly, Cyberdyne Systems is pretty much a given at this point. Then, of course, the machines will obviously become self-aware, then the unavoidable nuclear blast, and then the long protracted war against the machines, and a dark, burning, dystopian future where metal bots step on human skulls. And I mean, come on, I'm already tired. Ain't nobody got time for that. So, of course, this piqued my interest. What I'd like is for the very slowly growing rust hole at the bottom edge of the cab of my truck to heal thyself. That would be nice. But no, I suppose that's, that's probably not going to happen, is it? So, not with the same level of humor, this kind of headline has been repeated across multiple sites. For instance, found on EurekaAlert.org, headline, Stunning Discovery, Metals Can Heal Themselves. Or found on PopularMechanics.com, headline, Metal can heal itself. Yes, you read that right. So what exactly are we talking about here? Well, despite the headlines, we're not seeing a quasi-living liquid metal as seen in the Terminator movies. I think I'm happy about that, although that would be pretty cool. And we're not seeing metal just healing itself. That implies unguided, unaided autonomy. You know, like evolution. Insert laugh track here. No, the metal, at least at this point, appears to need to be the right metal and the conditions need to be the right conditions. So just like scientists proved evolution by acting as the intelligent beings that intelligently designed and performed experiments in intelligently designed, carefully monitored, and controlled laboratory conditions, and still didn't really come close to even starting to show, you know, the evolution of life. Well, this metal healing itself isn't quite the full story. So the opening paragraph on EurekaAlert.org says, quote, Scientists for the first time have witnessed pieces of metal crack, then fuse back together without any human intervention, overturning fundamental scientific theories in the process. If the newly discovered phenomenon can be harnessed, it could usher in an engineering revolution. 
one in which self-healing engines, bridges, and airplanes could reverse damage caused by wear and tear, making them safer and longer lasting. Now, this sounds, to me at least, literally earth-shattering. And then I, and then I guess earth self-healing again. Well, at least the metal bits of earth self. Anyway, one of the scientists performing the study, Brad Boyce, stated, quote, this was absolutely stunning to watch firsthand. What we have confirmed is that metals have their own intrinsic natural ability to heal themselves, at least in the case of fatigue damage at the nano scale. So, okay, first, we haven't confirmed that metals have anything. This was actually a nanoscale piece of platinum inside of a vacuum that was set up to have the ends pulled at 200 times per second, creating fatigue in the test piece. As expected, cracks in lengths of nanometers appeared, but about 40 minutes into the test, they observed one end of a crack fuse back together, and then they later saw the crack regrow in a different direction. So in 2013, Michael Demkowitz, a professor at Texas A&M, who at the time was an assistant professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the Department of Materials Science and Engineering, actually developed some computer models and developed a new theory that said, quote, under certain conditions, metal should be able to weld shut cracks formed by wear and tear. Now, I don't know what those conditions are, but obviously, as anybody would be, Demkowicz was pleased to hear that his theory had been proven correct, at least in this instance. Boyce went on to say, quote, The extent to which these findings are generalizable will likely become a subject of extensive research. We show this happening in nanocrystalline metals in vacuum, but we don't know if this can also be induced in conventional metals in air. So what did they actually see? Well, they saw 18 nanometers of a crack essentially weld itself together for a bit before a crack formed in a different direction from the original crack. So how big are we talking about here? Well, one millimeter is equal to one million nanometers. And for you standard measurement people like me, I hate the metric system, one sixteenth of an inch has 1,587,500 nanometers. Viruses are known to range from 20 to 500 nanometers. So this crack that healed itself is basically as big as the smallest virus we know of. Now, the human eye can see a human hair, which is about 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers. It's staying in the hair area, Lice nymphs, the smallest lice development stage, which are very hard to spot, are about 500,000 nanometers. The point is that an 18 nanometer crack, in my professional engineering opinion, it isn't a crack. In fact, from an engineering or materials perspective, there are a few ways to find cracks in materials. For metals, about the easiest method and probably the least precise is dye penetrant testing. This is a special paint in an activator. When sprayed on and given a little time, cracks appear as brightly contrasting colors as compared to the base paint. Now, they also make an ultraviolet type of dye penetrant paint that makes it even easier to find cracks. Next on the list of precision able to find smaller cracks is magnetic particle testing. This uses an induced magnetism in the metal and iron filings, essentially, where the filings surround and align to cracks in the metal due to a disruption in the magnetic field. 
Then you have eddy current testing, which uses an induced current in the metal and probes that look for a disruption in the pattern to find the cracks. That's another very precise way of finding cracks. You also have radiography, where you x-ray the metal looking for cracks, especially internal cracks and defects and inclusions. Then you have ultrasonic testing. This is probably the most useful tool for finding cracks. This method of testing can find cracks of less than one millimeter. So under 1 million nanometers. So here's the thing. If I were getting a part made and I required that it be crack free, and in my profession, this does happen oftentimes with welded pipe or welded vessels, we have no technology that could tell us if the weld had cracks in the nanometer range. We're looking for indications of millimeter cracks. If the part or weld had a 20 nanometer crack, it doesn't have a crack. Now, that may be a technicality, as that wasn't the point of their experiment that they were running. But the reality that I'm trying to explain is that we, in the real world, don't test for nanometer length cracks in materials because we simply can't. And we can't test in real time in real world situations, especially for nanometer length cracks. So when Boyce makes the statement that, quote, we don't know if this can also be induced in conventional metals and air... Well, we literally have no idea if all metals, if, if all materials, both naturally occurring and manufactured, exhibit this exact same process of nanometer scale fatigue cracking and re-welding or refusing. On an atomic level, atoms range from a few tenths of a nanometer to multiple nanometers across. Platinum specifically has an atomic radius of 136 picometers, which equates to an atom that's 0.272 nanometers across. So an 18 nanometer crack welding itself back together is literally 66 platinum atoms reconnecting. Boyce and his team dreams about the possibility of if this could be extended to solder joints and electronics, to engines or bridges or airplanes. And I would argue that it might already be taking place in all of these just literally all of the time. These materials might be cracking, so-called, and uncracking on a regular basis, which allows materials to last longer, all because of how the elements that make up this world, the very atomic structure, was designed in the first place. Romans 1 says, quote, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We, or at least I, tend to think about this as the trees and the flowers and man and animals, but I don't generally think of it as the very elements. I mean, think iron and gold and platinum and helium the periodic table of elements, and any elements that we haven't discovered yet. We can not only see God's power and nature in a beautiful botanical garden, but also in a lump of iron or platinum. And God's divine nature, what is that? Well, it's a lot of things, right? But but one of those attributes is found in 1 Corinthians 14.33, quote, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Well, if his nature can be seen in his creation, and his creation includes the elements, and the Greek word for the word confusion is akatastasia, which can mean, in addition to confusion, disorder or instability, essentially think chaos, would it be any surprise that even the elements reflect the order and stability of God's nature, and in our vernacular, 
self-repair to some degree, also, of course, being affected by the entropy introduced by sin, so although they fight against disorder, eventually they lose that battle. Psalm 104.24 begins, quote, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. And we know that all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were made by God and through him and for him, and that on the sixth day of creation he pronounced all of creation very good. So I, for one, wouldn't be surprised if materials were created to self-heal. And we are still actually just reaping the blessings and the benefits of this, at least up to a certain point. And in reality, if you think about it, we see the same concept, the creation by design able to self-heal. We see it everywhere, all the time. Found on climate.nasa.gov headline, CO2 is making Earth greener. For now... Now, this was a story from 2016 saying that over the last 35 years at that point, somewhere between 25 to 50 percent of green land around the globe has shown significant greening, largely due to rising levels, wait for it, of CO2 in the atmosphere. You know, the stuff that's going to kill us all. And since 2016, even though we all know that CO2 levels are unsustainable, our planet has continued to green and green because that's how God designed it. John Kerry, you know, horse face, speeding around in his jets telling us all to stop using cars and air conditioning and stoves. Just the other day, he said that agriculture was contributing way too much CO2 to the atmosphere, and it'll warm the planet. And if the planet warms, then we can't make food for people anymore. So we must cut back on ag in order to save the planet, because we can't feed people. Of course, if we cut back on ag, we also can't feed people. The problem he's got is that plants, even food plants, thrive in rich CO2 atmospheres and warmer temperatures. I mean, you ever been in a greenhouse? It's almost like God said, ah, fill up the earth. I've designed it to support as many humans as you can make. The more CO2 we produce, the more green space will be produced. The more oxygen will be produced, which we as people happen to like. And the more CO2 in the atmosphere, the better and bigger the plants will grow, producing food for more and more people. Again, almost like it was designed. But no, that's that's stupid. Don't think stupid things. We all know that when it comes to political agenda, things that work exactly as designed all the time don't work as designed anymore. Well, how about a few weeks ago, found on thebrighterside.news headline, Earth's atmosphere can clean itself. Groundbreaking research finds. Huh. You serious? The atmosphere cleans itself, they claim. So, as we all know, I don't mean to talk down to you here, but as we all know, the hydroxide molecule, which is one hydrogen and one oxygen atom, is a key molecule that cleans the air of pollutants. So, the science has been settled for some time now that the way atmospheric hydroxide is formed is that the UV rays of the sun hits ozone, which is three oxygen atoms together, or O3. The UV light splits one of the oxygen atoms away from the ozone, leaving oxygen, which is two atoms of oxygen, or O2, and a free oxygen atom. That oxygen atom then attaches to a water molecule, which is two hydrogens and one oxygen, H2O. And when combined, it creates two molecules of hydroxide, or OH. 
The hydroxide then scrubs the atmosphere by various chemical reactions that reform the hydroxide into water molecules, leaving the pollutant not as polluting, basically. Now that in itself is a miracle of creative design, but now scientists have recently discovered that this crucial molecule is created through yet another mechanism that doesn't require the sun as previously thought. Rather, a reaction due to the design of the surface of the water droplets. Now, being a new discovery, this is not fully known, but they found that in a control experiment, the model kept in the dark away from UV rays produced as much, if not more, hydroxide than the model exposed to UV light. The article states, quote, the implications of this discovery are significant. It could change the way we model air pollution, as the assumption has always been that hydroxide comes from the air and is not produced in the droplet directly. This means that existing models may need to be revised to take into account this new source of hydroxide. Um, yeah, maybe our models are incorrect. Maybe God designed this world to maintain itself, having full knowledge of what discoveries and advancements we'd make across all of time. Maybe this illogical fear of greenhouse gases and man-caused climate change is silly because God designed the planet to handle itself. Speaking of ozone, for those of you old enough, remember back in the late 80s when the ozone layer was just going to disappear forever because you wanted to use your hairspray and air conditioning? Remember the horrors of CFCs, the chlorofluorocarbons? Yeah, well, we fixed it because we got rid of those things. Ah, well, we didn't fix it, and it really didn't matter about the CFCs. Even after enacting all of the measures, which mostly consisted of you and I having to pay more for stuff because the replacement stuff was more expensive, for years, the CFCs and whatever pollutants they were worried about, well, they kept going up, but the ozone hole kept shrinking. And now we know that the atmosphere has a hole that opens and closes seasonally. The reason the assumption was made initially that they were destroying the ozone is because in the lab, CFCs apparently broke down ozone. But a lab experiment isn't the same as nature. Regardless, none of the data lined or lines up. We didn't fry all plant and animal life to smoking bits, and the ozone layer still does what it does, including seasonal holes or seasonal thin spots, seems like it's very nearly almost possibly maybe a cycle that was designed, possibly even something that's desirable for a reason that we don't yet know. Once again, the creation seems to manage itself. Now, I've covered this before, but remember the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon oil well blowout? This blowout and the subsequent difficulty in getting the well capped caused about 200 million gallons of crude oil, as well as natural gas and other hydrocarbons, to leak into the ocean. Well, a few months after the spill, if even that long, we were told that nobody knew the environmental impact this would cause, but we absolutely knew that it would be horrifically impacting the environment for years, if not decades or longer. Well, within a few years, there was a massive microbe bloom that happened in that area, and these microbes just so happened to be really fond of eating delicious hydrocarbons. Now, they didn't eat all the crude oil and break it down, some, but mostly stuff like the natural gas, the methane, hydrocarbons like that. Within five years, what was supposed to destroy us for decades was dramatically cleaned up. And 13 years since that well blew out, we, we've never heard anything about it. We, we just don't hear about it. We also don't talk about the fact that, as the NOAA reported, about 5 million gallons of crude oil, more or less per year, leak from the ocean floor into the ocean, just naturally. 
Now, they say that this has been happening for hundreds of thousands of years, but that's literally impossible, as these seepages require pressure to force the crude through the cracks in the sea floor, and there's no way that that pressure would remain high enough to continue forcing seepage for that kind of time. Anyway, the reality is that microbes, bacteria, were all designed to ensure our environment works the way it does. Now, sure, the, the Deepwater Horizon or the Exxon Valdez was a large quantity all at one time as compared to natural yearly seepage, but that's why there are blooms of these microbes. They're designed to continue to clean the ocean. Speaking of microbes, scientists were baffled less than a decade ago as to why we don't have about 100 times the current amount of plastic floating around and clogging the oceans. But then scientists discovered that microbes, they say evolved, I say existed, that loves to eat plastic, which makes most of the pollution disappear. We've also found the same kinds of microbes in the landfills, just loving the meals that are being given to them. We used to think that plastics and styrofoams would take generations to break down, but now we're finding that, relatively speaking, these microbes are consuming plastic and styrofoam at a rapid pace. It's, once again, almost like the planet is designed exactly like the planet is designed in order to use natural processes to maintain itself. Do we need to go on? See, I'd say that atomic-level cracks in platinum, metals, or materials in general healing themselves wouldn't shock me as being an exception. It would actually shock me more if it wasn't the norm. Jeremiah said, quote, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He also said, quote, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. And Paul said in Colossians, quote, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, Christians have believed these truths for millennia now, but I don't know that we've even scratched the surface of what, quote, in him all things hold together actually means. I mean, I've heard multiple pastors point out the very true fact that while Jesus hung on the cross, the fully man part of the God-man dying, he was holding the atoms of the nails together. He was holding the cells of the guards and the Pharisees together. He was holding the planet together. But these statements are generally said more as theological truths rather than scientific facts, general mind-blowing statements of who Jesus is rather than testable scientific theory. The world works in many mysterious ways. How anyone could ever believe that all we see and all that we know could be evolved through random chance and beneficial mutations is beyond me. Nature is an amazing thing. The creation screams at us that there had to be a creator. The design mandates that there was a designer. And whenever scientists doing actual science make a new legitimate scientific discovery, it does nothing but display a truth about God and further magnify his power and majesty every single time. Although all creation groans under the curse of sin, the amazing truth that God is a God of order, not chaos, can still be seen everywhere if we choose to open our eyes and see it. The fact that God is holding all things together, 
by his own will and his own power rings true in literally everything that we see all of the time. I gotta admit, I'm a little tired. I mean, I wasn't. I was fine. But knowing what's coming in the segment, just, uh, just instantly tired. Again, I'm not sure why you've decided to subject yourself to this again, but uh, just know I'm grateful for the company. Doing this with someone is daunting enough. Doing this alone, that's horrifying. And, and I'm an introvert. I prefer to do things on my own. <laughs> Before we begin, just briefly, as I've covered this multiple times, you're currently in part four of our Fundamental Disaster series, looking at the small sermon series from not too long ago from Andy Stanley entitled The Fundamental List. If this is the first segment you're listening to, I'd recommend that you go back to the Lying Liars That Lie segment, or at the very least go back and listen to the first three parts of A Fundamental Disaster. A lot of context, a sermon series that builds on itself, and a lot of background info in there. You won't be lost jumping in here, but you kind of will be. So, briefly recall, the sermon series is a list of what Andy has determined to be fundamental or essential beliefs that you have to hold in order to be a follower of Jesus. Not a Christian, a follower of Jesus. My premise in doing these reviews can be found in the book of Jude and in the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew. I've covered these in every segment before, so we'll just kind of bullet point it here. My belief is that Andy and those of his ilk is or are... One, a person who has crept in unnoticed, long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Two, an ungodly person who turns the grace of our God into sensuality and denies our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, ironically, as Jesus is all he talks about, but what he believes is not what's in the Bible. C, he rejects authority. Four, he blasphemes. Roman numeral V, he's a cloud without water. Six, he's an autumn tree without fruit, double dead, uprooted. Seven, he's a wild wave of the sea, casting up his own shame like foam. Eight, he's a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Nine, he's a bad tree, bearing bad fruit, and can be known by his fruits. And X, he is, and he's leading his congregants to be included in the many at the end times crying, Lord, Lord, did we not? And Jesus commanding them to depart as he never knew them. Now, you may disagree with me, and that's fine. Just point me to his fruits that would tell me different. So over the last three segments, we've covered the first five messages and five points on this growing disaster that Andy calls his fundamental list. Those points are, one, Jesus is God's son and our king. Two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. Three, Jesus defined sin as anything that harms you or others. Four, Jesus promised justice in the end and invites us to trust him in the meantime. Five, Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you to God. Okay, on the surface, at least most of those seem to be just fine, which is why you want to go back and listen, if you haven't, to the first three parts of the miniseries review. Don't take these at the surface level. A couple of Andy's key premises and statements so far. We should be Jesus followers, which is a good thing, not Christians, which is a negative thing. All we need is the Gospels, specifically the words and actions of Jesus. That tells us everything we need to know. The rest of the Bible, not required. Just because something is cultural, traditional, comfortable, doesn't mean that it's not toxic, hurtful, or harmful. 
He believes that theology and systematic theology is just an excuse to minimize Jesus. He doesn't believe that all the Bible is equal in importance. Just because it's inspired doesn't make it equal. The Gospels are the most important because there are four of them. The Old Testament is full of stories. The Gospels are not stories. Quote, when cultural and peripheral are considered essential, Christianity eventually becomes untenable and unlivable for someone. If we let new thoughts into our faith, we'll hurt people, and this includes thoughts that were new centuries ago that make people feel bad. Sin is when you hurt yourself or others. That's what Jesus said, says Andy. Andy believes that good news bringing great joy to all people means it's supposed to be for all people everywhere for all of time. Anything less is the fault of these non-essential, per Andy's definition, beliefs, traditions, and theologies. Andy doesn't like the God of the Old Testament, but since Jesus came to show us what God is like, we can look to Jesus only and ignore the Old Testament and that mean old nasty God. We shouldn't be judgmental. We aren't supposed to. We're bad at it, and Jesus will take care of it in the end, so we don't need to worry about things. And I'm sure there are others, but that gives you the basic premise of where we are. (sighs) So with that, we need to get started. Sadly, I'll only be reviewing part six today. Uh, This is not, on the surface, the worst message in the bunch, but I think as we dig in, you'll understand why this one is going to take the full segment. As promised in the last segment, Andy has pulled our dear friend out of the closet, his partner in theological crime, Joel Thomas. Last seen in Message 4, he's dusted him off, given him the required talking points and the approved script, probably threatened him and commanded him to get back up on the stage. Now, oddly enough, apparently his little doodle board was told to stay in the closet as it did not make another appearance. I'd guess Andy probably had that destroyed, likely in front of Joel, strapped to a chair, eyelids held open, so he could see the horror being done in front of him as he's screaming, No! Joel didn't do so good in Message 4, at least from my vantage point, and Andy's reiteration or clarification of Joel's main theme from Joel's Message 4 in Andy's Message 5 leads me to believe that Joel did not deliver as desired. But maybe he'll redeem himself in Part 6, right? Or maybe he'll be disappeared after this one and join his doodleboard. As has been our custom, we shall not begin with scripture. Rather, as most pastors do these days, we start with story time. In fact, it's story time, then a little light scolding, then a quote from a non-Christian telling us how bad Christians are, and then a recap of some of the list, and then ten minutes in, nearly a third of the way through, we get to a scripture. Now, I'm not saying that you must start with scripture every time, But to spend one-third of your monologue before getting to any scripture, that seems to be poor form. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and let me tell you, the view of me from behind is no better than the view of me from the front, so I better just slow down and merge myself back together into one here. So Joel starts by spending way too much time talking about hearing a cover band at a restaurant playing the intro to a classic U2 song expertly, only to butcher the rest of the song. And that, my friends, is what Joel claims exists in the church and Christianity today. And again, just as his mentor Andy does, he starts with this manipulation technique that he's gonna break the rules now. He's he's willing to go where others won't in order to rescue you. Quote, And I'll just give a quick disclaimer today. This could be a little uncomfortable for those of us who consider ourselves church people. (laughs) Oh, Joel, you rebel. Does Andy know that you've gone rogue? 
He then presents his premise, quote, Here's what we know, that because of a lot of people out there who are performing awful representations, awful cover versions of what it is to be a Jesus follower, there's many people who have been turned off. There's many people who resist. There's many people who aren't interested in joining in our faith. Now, shockingly, I totally agree. The bad news is, Joel, buddy, poopy, sweetie, you and your pal Andy are those people. Now, let me just point out once again his use of the term Jesus follower. Not a Christian, a Jesus follower. Don't think for a second that certain words and phrases aren't carefully chosen and crafted to express the exact message they want to convey or to avoid what is not to be said. Remember, Andy is a red-letter-only guy. No, he's never said that, but that's exactly who he is. And the reason he's that way is because he can easily point to what Jesus said, conveniently ignoring implication and context, and eliminate most of the nasty Bible, particularly that Old Testament, which is exactly what he's been doing throughout this series thus far, which has all sorts of mean things to say that Andy just, he just doesn't agree with those things. Anyway, let's continue on. Joel gives us an example of what he's talking about. He was theoretically, and I say it this way because to be honest, I don't believe this ever happened. Pastors are all too willing to lie in their sermons these days or preach someone else's sermon as their own and include the anecdotes as their own in order to make a point. Trust me, I know this from firsthand, very personal experience. So he said he was having a conversation with a 20-something-year-old, trying to convince him to come to the church, to, to try out the 20s group, that this church is different. And this alleged person said, quote, My church friends judge me for identifying as gay while they're living with their girlfriends. Joel said that as the pastor, he didn't know how to respond to that. As the pastor? Seriously, you didn't have a response as the pastor. That doesn't say much for you, Joel. I, I gotta be honest here. But can you see why I don't believe him? This supposed conversation is all too convenient, and it contains all the perfect elements. It's a little too on the nose, if you ask me. But more to the point, whether it actually took place or not, can you see where Joel is going? If you recall in part four, Joel hit the old judgmental thing pretty hard, mostly because that was his topic for the day. Maybe that's his thing, though. Maybe he's the don't-judge-me-bro kind of guy. Eh, let's go on. He goes on to cite a study. Now, he doesn't name the study, just says there was a study of, an, of a group of non-Christian people where only 3% of primarily the Gen X and Millennials have a favorable view of Christians. He goes on to say that 87% said that the Christians they knew were too judgmental, 85% too hypocritical. 78% said Christians are old-fashioned, and 75% said that they were too political. Now hold up, Joel. I'm going to let you finish, but I got to say, your numbers are suspect at best. Now, I don't want to call Joel a lying liar who lies, but he's definitely a twisting twister who twists. You don't get 3% of anything in a poll about what someone thinks about anything or something. There are always a minimum of three choices in a poll. Yes, no, and don't know. Or favorable, unfavorable, and no opinion. There's no way that 97% of Gen X and Millennials either found a Christians to be unfavorable or, I don't know, I have no idea what's going on in the world. Sorry, that's, that's a lie. I, th I think another lie. Notice he didn't cite his source. Not saying that he has to give us, you know, end notes or anything here, but a simple statement indicating it was a Barna or a Pew or a Crossway poll from the year of our Lord, 2000 and something would suffice. Now, here's the straight poop. Congress has an overall favorability of minus 57. That means that they have 57% more people that disapprove of what they're doing than approve. 
But as a straight percentage, Congress, you know, (laughs) Congress has 20% of respondents that approve of the job that Congress is doing. And you're telling me that only 3% approve of Christians? Not likely, Joel. And even if you say, well, that's looking at just the Gen Xers and Millennials, I still call bunk. Yeah, that's right. I said it. Bunk. And furthermore, the way that they view us, I get that those three are negatives, but what exactly is wrong with being old-fashioned? I mean, there are pros and cons to that one, sure. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong, though. That's what I think. Unless, of course, you have an agenda to rid yourself of historic accepted theology, which Joel and Andy do. So I tried to do some digging. The best I could find was a Barna poll conducted in 2015 that, uh, without paying the $40 for the full published study, noted in their free summary article two of the stats that Joel mentioned, the 87% that viewed Christians as judgmental and 85% as hypocritical. And for all that is holy, judgmental does not have an E in the middle. And you'd think that Microsoft's red squiggles telling me about that for, I don't know, the thousands of times I've done it would be enough for me to learn. I angrily digress. What he didn't mention from this eight-year-old poll is that 91% view Christians as anti-homosexual and 70% view us as insensitive to others. And I'm not sure why he wouldn't mention those unless he's got a specific agenda and those stats would veer us off course. Now, interestingly, our cruise director for this Titanic of a sermon, Joel, either didn't have his do boys go look up either of the two very recent polls conducted, or he simply ignored them for the sake of narrative. There was one that was done by YouGov.com and the other by PewResearch.com. YouGov, in December of 2022, did a randomized poll on the favorability of 35 different religions by asking a thousand people their view of a randomly chosen 17 of the 35, then compiling the results. Surprisingly, Christianity came out on top with a favorability score of plus 34. They didn't give the straight percentages, but that means that if not one person found Christianity unfavorable, a minimum of 34% of people found it favorable. Now, knowing that a number of people do not view Christianity favorable, a good amount greater than 34% view Christianity as favorable. They break this broad category down into various flavors of Christian and throw in some other faiths as well. Protestants were a plus 15, Amish and Jewish at a plus 11, Buddhism and Catholicism at plus 10, and the list goes on. Interestingly, agnostics came in at minus 4, while atheism scored a minus 15. The Southern Baptist Conference sat at minus 5, the Mormons at minus 21, Islam at minus 24, and tied for last at minus 49 is the Church of Scientology and Satanism. Now, he could have used that poll, but he didn't. He could have also used the Pew Research poll from March of 2023 that found mainline Protestants had a plus 20 favorability. That's 30% favorable versus 10% unfavorable, and 59% with no idea where they are in this world. Evangelical Christians came in at plus 2, but that was a 28% versus 27%, obviously there's some rounding here, versus 44% clueless. Similar to the YouGov poll, atheists sat at a minus 4, which is a 20 versus 24 versus 55%, Muslims at minus 5, which is a 17 versus 22 versus 59%, and Mormons at a minus 10, 15 versus 25 versus 59%. Now, he could have used either of those very recent polls, uh, but that isn't going to fit his narrative, and he absolutely knows that in his church, in the 35,000 strong that apparently attend the North Point Church conglomerate, and most of the tens upon tens of thousands of viewers online, 
We'll never look into his numbers. They'll just accept them as fact of how the world is today. Never, ever, ever just accept statements of fact thrown at you from anyone without at least thinking about what you're being told to believe and making sure it makes sense. This is why I put all my links to all my stuff in the notes. Moving on. He states that being viewed favorably isn't one of the fundamentals, but I just bet that by the end it kind of will be, though, as that's the desire of all seeker-sensitive, theologically weak, compromising, evangelical churches today. And then he restates what Andy has already stated many times, quote, when the non-essentials characterize, or they become central, or they define the church or Christianity, thoughtful people like yourselves, notice the flattery, this again is done to lull you to sleep, I am a thoughtful person, aren't I? And if he recognizes that, then, well, I can trust him. Thoughtful people like yourselves, you step away. At least you feel the need to deconstruct. Now, he rightly says that deconstruction of your faith is a very popular thing to do right now. We're hearing about various Christian celebrities that have declared they're deconstructing their faith. He wrongly states that people are doing it because they sense something is off in their faith or in their church experience or in other Christians. Now, I agree that these people feel something's off, but those deconstructing their faith aren't saved and never were. A deconstruction of your faith is simply shredding your previously professed beliefs to pieces, picking out the few that you feel are important, pieces that you believe make Christianity what you think it should be. Now, I base those comments off of every person, famous or not, that's declared they're deconstructing their faith. It's heresy. I'd argue that deconstruction is setting up your own personal cult. But no, that's apparently not the problem. Quote, maybe that's you. You've sensed something was off, and in your church experience or your experience with Christians, the tone or posture or approach of them toward you or toward somebody else you know and love, while it was deemed as Christian, it seemed very unchristlike. So he praises the process of deconstructing as long as you reconstruct, which is what he claims this fundamentalist does. And notice that you're the problem, though, if, if you're one of those Christians, right? You Christians aren't being very loving. You're being very mean and very judgmental. You're not acting like you have any idea who Jesus is. Have you ever read the Gospels? And remember his original lead-in story, the gay man seeing the hypocrisy of his fornicating friends telling him to stop being the gay? Are we starting to kind of tie things together here yet? So, after he recaps the list thus far, he appeals for what must be the third or fourth time in this sermon, sermon, to those that have a bad taste in their mouth for Christians or the church, to those who have walked away and are testing the waters again, to those who have never been to church, and he says, quote, faith in Christians is non-essential for following Jesus. Okay, now, although that's factually correct, did anyone else feel the full weight of that bus as it kind of womp-womped over the top of you? But he has a point, which is why he gave us those bogus poll results earlier. Quote, a lack of faith in Christians is almost universal for non-followers. Okay, um, first, <laughs> no. And second, and? I mean, why would Christians for one second believe that unrepentant sinners, unsaved enemies of God, enemies of Christ, enemies of Christians, would have faith in Christians? In the eternal spiritual plane, we aren't friends. We aren't on the same team. We're enemy combatants. Christians that follow both Jesus and the Bible as a whole will necessarily disgust and annoy non-Christians. That is until the Holy Spirit acts upon the non-Christian. So again, Christians are the problem. Just ask Gandhi, a solid Christian source, right? Well, no, but a highly spiritual man, one who is wise in the ways of religions, well, Joel quotes him prior to reading any scriptures, mind you. Quote, 
Oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Well, this is true. In fact, I'd say that no Christian is like Christ, although some are admittedly more so than others. But Gandhi, oft quoted and cited as being a soft-spoken, kind, patient, spiritual man, one to be emulated and revered, as Joel describes him, quote, who was a student of Christ. He actually quoted Christ a lot. Yeah, Gandhi, shockingly, not a Christian. But surely God ushered him into heaven because of his wonderfulnessitude on this earth. Well, hold on to your britches, a few fun facts. Uh, first, Gandhi left his father's side as he was dying so he could go have sex with his new bride. Uh, next, Gandhi was a massive racist. Uh, he hated the Europeans because he felt that they were trying to turn Indians, you know, from India, into lowly, uh, basically N-words, although he used his word for it, but that's what he said. Uh, next, in the first year or two of World War II, Gandhi wrote to Hitler to call for peace, addressing him as a dear friend. And next, he had a number of young female <clears throat> companions. He made it a practice to give himself up to two enemas a day and mandated regular enemas to these females as well, which he would administer. He also had them visit him while he sat in the bathroom for hours with frequent bouts of constipation, and his constipation was brought on by the diet he ate, primarily because he thought his diet would promote his sex drive, which he practiced with a variety of women, or at least allegedly so. Continuing with these young girls and women, he used them to move him around, bathe him, and give him massages while he was nude. Speaking of nudity and girls, he had them sleep next to him nude, the girls nude, probably he was also nude, in order to test his chastity. This included teens and adults, singles and marrieds. One wonders how many times he failed the test, seeing as he started doing this in his 30s. One of these was actually a grandniece. Now, he was 77 at the time, as she was 18. Speaking of sex, which seems to be the topic we're speaking of the most here, Gandhi orchestrated sexual temptation between young boys and girls, sending them to bathe together, then sleep in very close quarters. And if a couple were given into the temptations that Gandhi set in motion, they would be punished. By Gandhi, in fact. And along with being racist, he was clearly sexist, and to use the language of today, homophobic. So yeah, Gandhi really loved our Christ. If it wasn't for those mean, hypocritical, unchristlike Christians, I mean, he was so close to being converted. <laughs> so, so close. So Joel goes into an exposition of Matthew 16, 13 through 18, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus names him Peter and declares that on this rock I will build my church. Now, Joel actually does a solid job of explaining that this rock was not, in fact, Peter. Peter would be instrumental in starting the church, but the declaration of faith that Peter made, and consequently those who make that declaration of faith that Jesus is God, they will be those uh, they are those who he is building his church on. And then Joel jumps in and gives us fundamental number six. Quote, the church is God's agent of transformation personally, culturally, and globally. He states, quote, 
The gathering, showing up with one another, showing up for one another, is how we encounter Jesus. The church is how we experience Jesus, and when we experience Jesus in the body, when the body gathers together, because the body gathering together is the representation of Jesus, remember, that's who we pass the baton to, and so when we gather in the body, we experience the transformation power of Jesus, and we are transformed personally. And as we become more like Jesus, and as we are transformed in the community of the body of Christ, we become agents of cultural and global change in the world around us. It's the way Jesus designed it to work. So first, he spent a good amount of time gently bashing Christians. Now he says you should gather with Christians in the church, but don't be alarmed. I'm sure he's going to get back to slamming Christians more soon. Second, he kind of sounds like Kamala Harris, doesn't he? Just repeating the same words in a different order, looking for a way out of the words roundabout that he was stuck on. And third, going to church doesn't transform anyone. The Holy Spirit does. The church is made up of Christians and is for Christians to learn, recharge, grow, build relationships, etc. So we can go back into the unbelieving world and be those hands and feet. The unsaved are absolutely welcome and present in the church, but the Bible tells us that it's foolishness to them unless the Holy Spirit chooses to open their eyes and regenerate their heart at that specific time. Again, although technically what he said isn't necessarily wrong, the way he said it seems off to me. Church is or should be part of our sanctification process. Although we're told not to neglect the gathering of ourselves together, I don't think anyone could say that without church we can't progress in sanctification. My mind goes again to Christians in persecution that may not be able to attend a church, even an underground church. So the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, is the sanctifying power of the Christian, and if we have the opportunity to attend a church, that should also play a large role. One other thing. I've got to take issue with his statement about the church or the body, us, becoming the agent of global and cultural change in the world around us. Again, I don't find this to be necessarily wrong, sort of, but that's not who or what we're called to be or do, respectively, of course. Please correct me if I'm wrong here. But this has been kind of stuck in my craw for some time, which I don't know what that is exactly, but it sounds uncomfortable. Anyway, It seems to me that churches, the typical general evangelical church these days, has placed a massive emphasis on the community that the church resides in. Now, please don't take what I'm going to say wrong. I think that if a church has the ability to be a positive force in the community, that's fine. But it seems like a lot of churches are focused solely or primarily in community activities. Now, I've racked my brain, which didn't take too long. I've done a Google search, and I can't for the life of me remember instructions in the Bible directing the church to have community cleanup days or hold festivals or develop prison ministries or any other community-focused thing like that. Again, it's fine if you do that as long as it's in no way negatively impacting or neglecting what the church is supposed to be doing. But from what I can remember, the church has certain mandates— caring for their widows and orphans, worshiping and singing together, exhorting and correcting each other, etc., etc. We are individually commanded as Christians to go into the world. And as we go, tell others the gospel. That was a command given to the apostles, not the church, as the church didn't exist yet. We know that we individually are to love God with all we are and love our neighbors as ourselves. And some would call this the third great commandment, love each other, meaning Christians should visibly display love for fellow Christians as the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus, that we are Christians by how we love each other. 
If you live in the political and religious world like I do, you know that the massive number of social welfare programs that the government put in place nearly a century ago had a massively negative impact on monetary giving to churches and reliance on family first and church second to help those associated with each body, rather relegating the help to the government to dole out through our tax dollars and their systems. It seems like we, individual Christians, have done the same thing with the church. We rely on the church to do things, preach things, go and tell things, rather than doing this ourselves. And if I pay my tax dollar, uh, sorry, tithe dollars to the church, then whoever in the church is doing whatever for the community, hey, I'm a part of that too, by default. So this push to create, as a church, cultural and global change, I don't think that's a thing. That's not a mandate of the church. Now, we can individually vote for government representatives. We can individually proclaim the gospel to others. We can be Christians that are activists in the social and political realm, and those efforts could theoretically culminate in cultural and global change, at least temporarily. And if the church has the ability to support individuals and groups and programs that can affect the community or the globe, I don't find that to be a wrong thing to do. Think of missionaries, though. How many churches have their own missionaries? Now, denominations do, and clearly missionaries come out from individual church bodies, but missionaries are generally part of a collective, a specific business or mission entity, and many churches and individuals lend the support for that individual to go into an area and preach the gospel. So I guess, after all of my rambling, I'd have to take umbrage with this fundamental, as I believe the church has neither the mandate nor the authority nor the biblical directive to be, quote, God's agent of transformation personally, culturally, and globally. This is neglecting and twisting, I'd say purposefully, the mission of the church and the responsibilities of those in the congregation, individually, and as part of the church. If I were a cynical man, which clearly I am not, <laughs> it almost seems like the intent of this fundamental is to elevate the church to a position of minor deity, a place to be worshipped, not a place to worship in. But let's keep going and see what he does with this. So he takes an interesting turn, pitting the church against modern technology, or more accurately, the information age. He states that the information age has revolutionized efficiency, transformed connection, and fostered individualization. It's had positive and negative consequences. Then he says, quote, You see, instead of Jesus and the gathering and experiencing Jesus in the body being king, information in our society has become king. And when information is king, isolation is not far behind. Okay, now I know that what he's saying is exactly what everyone is saying these days. Although we're the most connected society in all history, via internet apps and social media, we're also more lonely than at any other time in modern history. But to say that information leads to isolation, that's kind of nonsensical. Correlation doesn't necessarily lead to causation. I agree that social media has a direct correlation and data suggests very heavily that it's causing increased loneliness, depression, and anxiety. I've discussed this on past episodes. I also know that working from home or live streaming or web meetings allow us to hide in our basements, but to lump all information technology into one pile, I don't think that's correct. But he goes farther, not only is isolation not far behind, but due to information being king, quote, incarnation gets left behind. So he makes the point that Jesus was the incarnation, the physical manifestation of God on earth, that he wouldn't have come to earth if it wasn't important for him to come. And when Jesus left the earth, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us as a body. Quote, in this age, in history, the gathering of the local church, the body of Christ, is the incarnation of God. 
No, Joel, no, we're not. I'd like to say that I know what he's trying to say, but I'm not confident that he's not saying exactly what he's saying. It sounds like he's saying that the church is Christ, or a sort of Christ, or a little Christ. There is a heretical doctrine out there called the Little God's Doctrine. Kenny Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, all contemporaries with Andy Stanley, all believe in the Little God's Doctrine. To quote Joyce Meyer, quote, You know, I was listening to a set of tapes by one man, and he explained it like this, and I think this kind of gets the point across. He said, You know, why do people have such a fit about God calling his creation, his creation, his man, not his whole creation, but his man, little gods? If he's God, what's he going to call them but the God kind? I mean, if you, as a human being, have a baby, you call it a human kind. If cattle has another cattle, they call it cattle kind. So, I mean, what's God supposed to call us? Doesn't the Bible say we're created in his image? Or more succinctly put, Kenny Copeland said, quote, When I read in the Bible where he says I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. <laughs> this is a word of faith heretical teaching that says because we are made after God, thus the God kind, thus little gods, we have the ability to use supernatural powers, which these false teachers, these wolves, generally claim is manifested through our faith. So if you can't do it, it's because your faith isn't strong enough, better so a seed in their ministry. And it's essentially us giving commands to the Holy Spirit to do our bidding. Well, we aren't little gods. We aren't little Christs. Christ is the incarnation of God. The only incarnation of God, the church, is the bride of Christ. The church is the hands and feet of Jesus. It's not God on earth. Now, I don't know that this is the direction he's going, but it sure sounds like it to me. And knowing who Andy really is, I'm fairly confident that that's what's being said. Maybe Andy had Joel preach this one, knowing that it probably wouldn't be scrutinized by the discernment ministries out there as much. I don't know. Who knows? Joel continues on and makes the point that due to the current information technology age, many have decided that gathering as a church is non-essential. I totally agree with him on that, and truth be told, I can be randomly guilty of that myself. He brings us back to the old days, the COVID days, when churches locked down and governments declared churches to be non-essential. He says, speaking of this change, quote, But there's been this recent cultural shift, not just outside the church, but within the church, and many view the gathering, or the attending, or the gathering of the church as non-essential. And come on, let's just be honest for a minute. I'm just going to push you for just a second. Many of us, if you look at our behavior and our activity, many of us view the gathering, or attending the gathering, gathering with other believers, we view it, or at least our actions seem to proclaim it, as non-essential. I mean, he speaks like an antique car trying to start up on a cold day as you push the pedal to the floor and then you pump it and pull the choke out and push it back in. Don't flood it. It keeps trying to catch. It almost starts and then back to cranking. I mean, dude, just spit it out already. You don't need to qualify and repeat slightly differently everything you say 47 different ways. He's just not good at this. So we're viewing going to church as non-essential. Various government agencies told us church is non-essential. He says, quote, the church stopped gathering in person. And now we know we didn't stop gathering. We continued to gather online, but that wasn't the perception of many outside and inside the church. Okay, so gathering online is not gathering, all right? I know some people cannot get to church. The fact that we can live stream is a wonderful thing, but, but in the pure sense of the term, gathering online is not gathering. The way churches handled COVID, looking in the rearview mirror, 
are nearly infinite, right? Now, my personal view was that I didn't have a problem with the church shutting down, hopefully being able to stream or something for the congregation for a period of time, a month, two months, three months. But after that, after it was clear that this pandemic wasn't what we were told or lied it was going to be, I think churches needed to open up. A lot of them did. A lot of them didn't. The topic was a heated, sensitive one and still is today to some degree. But remember his point. There are literally people inside and outside the church that consider the gathering to be non-essential. July 15th, 2020, a camo t-shirted Andy Stanley joined, via remote feed of course, CNN upon his announcement that North Point Community Church was going to shut down campuses for the rest of the year. He's asked, of course, with the CNN spin, quote, It does not go unnoticed when a pastor with your reach says that he can't keep his congregation safe. What are you seeing that led you to this decision? And Andy replies, quote, Well, first, Kate, thanks for having me on. The context of our decision was we want to love our neighbors, and we want to be a good neighbor, and we want to love our neighborhoods, and we're for our communities, and we don't want to accidentally do something to our communities. And you understand this. Your viewers understand this. We have to go to the grocery store. We have to go to the drugstore. We have to go to work. We don't have to go to church. So we have chosen to bring church to the people in our community. Actually, people all over the world. And this is a temporary shutdown. But the church isn't shut down. It's just our Sunday morning services. So this really was about the health of our congregation. But not just our congregation. This was about the health of our entire community. Kate responds, quote, And you know, I have heard other faith leaders, you know, early on in this pandemic, especially saying that churches are essential services. They must, you must have Sunday, Sunday worship. The doors, your doors must stay open. What do you say? What do you say to those faith leaders? And he says, quote, Well, a church is an essential service, but a one-hour worship service with hundreds of people, or in our case, thousands of people all crammed into a room, is not an essential service, and that's one of the things people need to understand. Our church and our staff are actually busier, maybe than we've ever been, because we've reallocated assets, personnel to serving in the community. In fact, and we're not the only church doing this, lots of large churches are very outward-facing, so we're not closed, but a one-hour worship service, hey... We can do that at home, and as everybody listening understands, we can worship wherever we choose to worship. So this is, you know, the worship service is one facet of a healthy church, and we've just decided to suspend that one facet of our local churches. (laughs) Okay, well look, like I said, you don't have to go to church. If you can't, if there isn't one, yes, I agree that shutting down for a time was fine until we got a little more info on what exactly the real threat was or wasn't. But Andy made this decision about three to five months after most churches shut down and right around the time many churches had had enough of the shutdowns and were opening back up because the fear mongering was clearly hype and the gathering was important. So Joel says that the church is essential that it's the gathering of the believers, that the information age is making it so the church isn't gathering, and that's bad. And COVID made it worse, but North Point was still gathering, just online, which is counter to everything he just said about gathering. And Andy decided to shut down a church for about a year, at least, because that particular gathering together in person isn't essential. (sighs) Are you confused yet? In fact, John MacArthur called out churches, not by name, just in general, that were continuing to stay shut down due to the government entities telling us how dangerous COVID was to church gatherings, but not casinos, brothels, bars, etc. Churches that were saying that gathering together wasn't essential, despite what the Bible says. 
Now, Andy, of course, took this personally because he knew he was one of those, and he knew he could open up at any time. But although he describes his politics as leans right of center, I don't know how you can be a Christian and just lean right of center, I don't get that, he clearly is and is becoming even more so at least a social liberal. So he's not going to buck up against the likes of Fauci, but what he is going to do, what he did do, is capitalize on being picked on from his perspective and wrote a book entitled... Not in it to win it, why choosing sides sidelines the church. <laughs> Maybe Andy isn't a wolf after all. Maybe he's just a snake. I'm sorry for saying this, but that's a bald-faced lie. Andy is a slimy, smarmy individual, let's be honest. Well, moving on, Joel gives yet another poll, this time actually giving the polling body, Barna and the study date, 2020. I'm so glad he was able to dredge up that info this time. This poll showed that over the decade ending in 2020, active churchgoers declined, non-churchgoers increased, etc., etc., and because of that, the world views us as judgmental, hypocritical, old-fashioned, too political. Yeah, I'm not kidding. He said that after a decade of people not being in the body, not being part of the incarnation of Christ, you know, the church, the world sees us this way. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not following the connections he's trying to make. I think this is what happens when you start with your agenda point in mind and you try to craft something or, or anything around it. And he goes on, quote, So the question we're asking is, is the church essential? Is it essential? I mean, here's the thing. Is the gathering of the church, is the people attending church, is you showing up at a local body and interacting with other believers, is that essential? And how essential is it? So right now, you should be saying, no, Andy made it clear that it's not essential. Showing up isn't essential as long as things are being done for the community and you can stream the service. And the government tells you it's not safe and if you love your neighbor. Now, oddly, Joel goes the other direction, though. Counter to his boss, quote, I would tell you because of the way things are trending, it's more essential than ever. Now, I would agree with him. But has anyone checked on Joel? Is he still employed? Alive? I mean, he's still listed on North Point's Buckhead Campus site website, so I guess he's okay. I wonder if Andy listened to this message yet. Eh, probably not. Why would he? Then he asks that with the bad reputation that the church has with so many people, is the church salvageable? Again, a long diatribe to finish out verse 18 of Matthew 16. Jesus will build his church on this faith of the believers and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Then he jumps to Hebrews, the standard, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. So he goes back once again to, quote, the reality is gathering with the local church is how God's transformational power gets unlocked in your life and in our communities and the world around us. And no, I think we've established that it's not. He said that that's why their mission is, quote, to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in the life and mission of the local church. That's their mission? That's an interesting mission statement, isn't it? For comparison, just for comparison's sake here, John MacArthur's Grace Community Church's mission statement is, quote, Our mission is to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit for the salvation of the lost and edification of the church. Ah, well, nah, sorry. When you say them both out loud like that, I mean, they're basically the same thing. <laughs> Jinx. To illustrate this, he goes on a long story about their sixth grade camp where they had 1,133 students, and one leader that was subbing for another leader noticed that one of his kids wasn't as involved as the others. Eventually, the student confided that he was having suicidal thoughts, so the leader worked with the student during camp and kept working with him after camp, and Joel says that this student began experiencing Jesus, a transformational experience with Jesus, and began to find hope. Now, again, this may or may not be true. I'll just take this one for granted that this one is true. Joel goes on to ask, quote, 
Let me ask you, where else can that happen? That only happens in the local church. It happens best in the local church. And then he moves on to give stats about the camp. But here's the thing. This kind of thing happens all over, all the time. This, in fact, didn't even happen at the local church. It happened at a church event, a camp. It wasn't the church body that helped the student. It was an individual that noticed and cared. You could see the moment of realization that this illustration really didn't work well. It was falling flat when he said, oh, it happens best at the local church. And no, it could happen at a local church. But more accurately, this is what the church should equip believers to do, to go and tell of the hope that they have, to care for others, to notice those in need. Now, I don't know if this student is saved or was saved or found salvation through this camp or this leader. I'll leave that process to the Holy Spirit. But if this leader helped this student by giving him hope, my hope would be that the leader did this by showing the student the true Jesus and the truth found in the scriptures. The church equips us to be able to do that to help people one-on-one in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying the church. Hopefully, I've been clear that it is essential to meet together because Jesus said it is, because that's what God set up for a number of reasons. And as a church, we can do many things externally and internally, but it's not the only way that God can do things. It's not a magic formula, regardless of Joel saying, quote, Active gatherings of believers activate God's transformational power in our world, and miraculous things happen in our lives and the lives of those around us. When we gather and each one plays our part, marriages are transformed, God through His Spirit restores families, hearts are mended, addictions are broken, purpose is realized, lives are rescued. He believes that by showing up, quote, each of us will experience the transformation that God has for us, and maybe, just maybe, people's view of Christians, at least in our communities, will be transformed as well. Okay, so on the surface, this was a solid message. Most people would find this to be a very good message on the importance of church in the life of the believer and in the world. I'd agree with that. The church is important. Jesus will protect the church in general, but obviously that doesn't mean that the churches will be protected individually or specifically. I mean, look at the fracturing of Christianity into denominations. Look at churches within denominations that are absolutely heretical. Look at other countries, Muslim or communist or honestly Hindi or Buddhist countries where Christians are persecuted, murdered for their beliefs. Countries where there aren't churches, where their underground churches aren't doing anything to affect the culture or the world where they're just trying to survive. Are they doing it wrong? Are they less blessed by God? Is their faith not enough? The importance of the church, not as a building necessarily, but as a community of believers, is is very important, for the Bible tells me so. But the church as a building housing humans is not of the utmost importance. It's a luxury that thankfully we in the United States have, and countries all around the world are able to partake in. The church is not responsible for transformation, and transformation doesn't rely on the church. Transformation is a work of the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus by the will and election of God, period. The church is for the saints, not the lost. As I said, the lost are more than welcome, but the church is never to be tweaked or tailored to cater to the unsaved. The church was never supposed to be the building you drug your unsaved friend to to get them bashed over the head with a Bible and subsequently saved and dunk them quick. The church is for the saved to grow in sanctification, to go out to the world and tell the lost about the hope we have. And as I said, Christians are not to be concerned with how the world views us. We are to be concerned with following the commands of God, with living the lives that Christ would have us live. We're never going to be desirable to the outside world. If we are, we're doing it wrong. 
the unsaved world will always find us to be hypocritical because we are, because we're saved sinners. They'll find us judgmental because we don't agree with what they agree with. Old-fashioned because we adhere to a book that had its final writings done nearly 2,000 years ago and we refuse to treat it as a living document to be updated with the wants, desires, and trends of the current times. And political because we vote. We're active for and against specific causes and we're vocal about social issues. The reality is that for most of the unsaved, they want us to go into our churches, lock the doors, and disappear. For some, they won't be happy until we no longer exist. Those are some of the, I don't know, let's call them micro-problems with this message. On a macro level, the reality is that Mr. Thomas is telling us to stop being so Christian-y, like some of those fuddy-duddy, judgmental, mean Christians are, and modernize, adjust, change, compromise, so that we can better affect the culture and the world, not for spiritual change, for moralistic improvements. There's a reason he started with a bogus story about Christian guys living with their girlfriends judging a gay guy for having the gay. There's a reason why he told a story about a kid being suicidal. These are very thoroughly developed messages. Who are we being told by the media today, by the lost world, are the most susceptible kids to suicidal tendencies these days? I'd say we're being inundated with stories of kids with gender dysphoria that will kill themselves unless we love them enough to let them destroy themselves. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but, but look back at the segment on Lying Liars Who Lie, and that's about what's happening at Stanley's consortium of churches and horde of church leaders. And let me point out one last thing. Question from Joel's talk only. Tell me the gospel. Joel not once spoke about the gospel and only spoke of Jesus as the guy running the first leg of the relay race. The church is the anchor leg. Jesus handed off that baton after doing all he could so we could bring it home. If those unsaved, church-adverse, lost sheep were attending this church service, what did they learn? And this is the danger of these messages. They're subtle. They're well thought out. They sound right, but they're dangerous. They're only Christian light at best. They're agenda-driven. They're giving people just enough addicting drug to make them feel good for a little while, but by the next Sunday, they're craving the next fix. These kinds of messages, combined with the heavily emotional but empty worship music of today, are nothing but a drug for a lost and hopeless community of mostly unsaved people or saved and very immature Christians. And when I say that, I'm including the leadership as well. And that brings us to the end of yet another segment in our review of this sermon series. I'm sorry that I couldn't cover two of these sermons in this segment. I promise I'm not dragging this out on purpose. This one was just so subtly bad. And that's what these messages are. When you watch a Benny Hinn or someone like him, most people can clearly see that this is a clown show, a scam, a money grab full of lies and poorly orchestrated magic tricks. But because of the state of the church, the state of theology in our, what, five-second attention span in our current era, so-called pastors like Andy Stanley or Joel, T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Joyce Meyer, Perry Noble, Ken Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, Creeflo Dollar, Jensen Franklin, Joel Osteen, Robert Morris, John Hagee, Greg Laurie, and so many others command the audiences, get a TV spot, rake in the cash because they pander to those that are enamored by them, and they tell them exactly what they want to hear, but not what they need to hear. The truth, the gospel, biblical exposition. This is dangerous, and this is angering. And this is sad. We as Christians must do better. We must get away from these churches. We must help others get away from these churches. So, as you ponder that and think about what I've said in this segment, let me know if I've said anything you disagree with. Let me know if you think I'm being too picky or not picky enough. 
Did you know that there are Facebook groups out there for people that are recovering after they found their way out of these heretical churches? Yeah, if you've got a story, hey, let me know. And join me next time for the review of sermon number seven and maybe number eight of this sermon series. I promise we'll get through these last few as quickly as possible without compromising the review process. Now, I'm going to go take something for this headache and lay down, stare at the ceiling, and think about what I've done. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.